Broadcasting from Orchard Park, New York, and Boca Raton, Florida, it's the Freight 360 Podcast. From freight broker sales tips to sports talk, this podcast is all about helping you grow as a freight broker. We're your hosts, Nate Cross and Benjamin Kowalski. Let's talk freight. Yeah, let's talk freight. Welcome back for episode 166 of the Freight 360 Podcast. Today's a special episode. It's actually weird too, Ben. We're recording twice in the same week here. So we're recording on Veterans Day. This will drop next Friday, but happy Veterans Day to everybody out there. Uh, but we're going to be interviewing a, a shipper today to get your to get to give you guys all some insight into what it's like to be in the customer's shoes. So we've got Paul Estrada on with us. We're going to keep his uh, company name under wraps so you all don't blow him up. But uh He's, uh, he's going to be a great guest. We'll get to Paula in just a minute here. But first, this, this episode is brought to you by Blue Book. Blue Book Services is the resource you need if you're transporting fresh produce. Their online database contains thousands of companies throughout the produce industry supply chain. You can easily search their database to generate new sales leads. Blue Book's credit ratings help you avoid companies with high credit risk, and their team can help resolve disputed loads. To learn more, go to ProduceBlueBook.com and click join today. That's ProduceBlueBook.com. Hey, Ben, you know what? Speaking of uh, Blue Book, I meant to send you this yesterday. I actually got to see we had a we had a dispute on a claim this week and Blue Book sent us back like the actual percentage of um, damage that came from the carrier error. And then the remaining amount was deemed to be the customer's error. It's pretty cool. I'll have to share it with you, but they do a good job. Uh, so that's that's uh, Produce Blue Book. But hey, Paul, welcome to the show, man. How's it going today? Great. Thanks for having me. Appreciate it. Yeah. So if you don't mind, just just for our audience who don't know who you are or what your uh, you know what your experience and background is, just give us a quick rundown um, to give just kind of set the stage here and give some context. Sure. I've spent my uh, entire career in the logistics and transportation space. Um, started back in 2008. Uh, most of my time has been uh, spent on the shipper side, though I did have a, a brief stint on the uh, capacity provider carrier side. So, um, you know, have that perspective of being on both sides of the table, so to speak. Uh, early years were primarily spent in operations, uh, a lot throughout supply chain from uh, supply planning, customer service, transportation operations. Um, and probably the last seven years or so, primarily focused within the procurement and logistics tech space. Nice. Awesome. Well, it's great, great to have you on the show. We're definitely going to pick your brain today. Ben, how did you fare the hurricane? I, it, there was really, it was a n- nothing, nothing burger <laughs> as far as hurricanes go. It's a little rain. Yeah, to be honest, I mean, there were kids swimming in our pool even like pretty late that night. Like, I mean, it rained and it definitely rained a lot and there were some gusts, but I mean, it wasn't anything to even move our plants around. You know anyway, what I... Better safe so I, than sorry. Yeah. You know what I forgot about until I was in Florida last weekend is like just rains randomly for like five minutes, like every day yeah. or a couple times a day. Yeah. It was so If weird. you look at the weather... Every single day between it's like April or May through right around hurricane season, it rains between one and three every single day for anywhere from five to 30 minutes. Every forecast, like you'll look at it when you're getting ready. It's like rain every day. And it's like 15 minutes of it in the whole 24 hour period. (laughs) Wild. Uh, Well, 
So we already did, again, because we're recording this week before it, it releases, we already did our sports take on this coming week's NFL. But Paul, what's your, so you're a California guy. You're, are you in LA or what, what part of California are you in? Yeah, Orange County. So probably 45 minutes outside of LA. Gotcha. Okay. John Wayne International Airport, right? That's the one. Yeah. I only went out there once. I, I went to, um, where did I go? It was like the Laguna Beach area, Santa Ana and Catal- not Catalina, um, uh, Balboa Island. Is that a, is that out there? Yeah, that's a thing. Yep. Yeah. I like road segways around. This is like 15 years ago, but it was awesome. <laughs> yeah. So I think I asked you this before we like one of the first times we hopped on, um, but the, the whole Rams chargers, what's the, um, how is LA fan base taking having two football teams out there? Yeah. So they remember NFL left LA in 95, I think. So for people my age, we we basically grew up without an NFL team. Yeah. Um, Some of us kind of diverted to the chargers. You see a lot of, Still Raiders fans, and I mean it's kind of like a all over the place. Hodgepodge. Um, yeah. What was interesting, at least from my perspective, was people kind of shifted away from the NFL into college football. Like that mm. was what we used to fill the void. And if you remember, at that time, USC was huge. You know, you had like Leonard and Reggie Bush and all those guys. Yeah, winning national titles. Um, so it seemed like no one really cared that the NFL was gone because you had a team like SC that was effectively the NFL ish team. Yep. Um, and then that went away, right. They had the whole scandal and all that sort of stuff. Um, and then I don't know, just kind of was a dead zone. If you think about LA sports, you have the Lakers, Dodgers, the King. I mean, there's just like, no, there's endless sports. That there's so much. It just seemed like it wasn't that big a deal. So now that the teams are back, you know, I think, by far, LA is more of a Rams fan than anything. Them winning the Super Bowl last year obviously went a long way. You have a lot of bandwagon fans, me included, right, that jumped on the bandwagon last year. It feels like the Chargers are kind of a non-factor. It's kind of just you're there; they exist, but it doesn't seem like there's a ton of fans. But overall, it's kind of embarrassing. You, you know, you, you might hear about it on the national media where you know we got this beautiful new stadium. And the Rams are playing. They just won the Super Bowl, and over fifty percent of the fans are the opposing fans. There's so much so that you know uh, they have to go into silent counts at home, right? It's like so that part's kind of embarrassing. It's like, what do you expect when when the NFL is gone for so long? So I'm sure it'll come around. It's gonna. Yeah, take, it'll take it'll take a few years, but, but I think it will. Yeah, that's that's where NFL stands in L. At least from my perspective. Well, I mean, hey, you guys got a ring, and that is. Uh, that's something that I can't say for my Buffalo Bills. So yet at least. So yeah, we'll, we'll see. see. Well, good stuff. We're glad to have you on. We're going to get into the topic here, but Ben, let's give a shout out to our friends over at DAT and then we'll uh, jump into it. Taking the guesswork out of freight with DAT. The DAT load board network is the largest on-demand freight marketplace in North America, connecting freight brokers with available capacity on any lane. Grow your business with tools that allow you to find new business partners and you can quickly qualify and onboard new carriers. With the industry's leading freight rate data, you can make clear and confident pricing decisions. Check out the show notes for a free month of Express, Power, or Trucker's Edge. Absolutely. All right. So this is an episode that we've been wanting to do for a while, putting putting yourself in the customer's shoes. So I'm just going to... I want to ask a bunch of questions, and I'm sure Ben does too, because a lot of this stuff comes from our audience and people they'll send us in 
um, questions through either email or through our website or whatnot. And obviously the goal of any new freight broker is getting customers, right? So I'm curious. So you work for a, uh, can you, can you tell us like the volume of shipment that you do just to give us some context? Sure. We're enterprise shipper, uh, shipping over a million truckloads annually. Okay. So that's a lot. Um, (laughs) now the number of prospecting calls that are made on you or emails, what does that look like um, on average? Yeah. Do you get bombarded or what's it, what's it break down to? Not so much anymore. Um, I think maybe people on my team do, but for perspective, and it, it's funny because you can tell based on where we're at in the market cycle, <clears throat> you know, like when we are with some softening as we are today, the, the call and email volume goes up. And then when things tighten up and capacity's tight, it kind of dissipates a little bit. But um, I would say between emails and phone calls, it's going to be somewhere north of 250 a year minimum. Okay. That's just me not including, you know, again, people like managers within my regions or people on my team that might also be uh, people reaching out to them as well. So I wanted you- to, I want to hold on before we go a little yeah. deeper. I just wanted to clarify. So a million loads a year. So you guys are doing roughly 19,000 loads a week out of how many locations? Uh, I think around over 40, over 40, locations. 40 locations, almost 20,000 loads a week. Right. Okay. That's right. That's a lot. That's a big, (laughs) big customer, big shipper right there. So back to the prospecting stuff. So it's probably safe to say, if you include everybody across the organization, there's there's probably well over a thousand contacts per year. How many, how many in your department, by the way, how many in the transportation department that services this amount of business? We break up the logistics and the procurement group. So if you're mm-hmm. looking at strictly the procurement, it's probably somewhere over um, over 40. Uh, that's going to be then, any, anything from load planning to spot coverage to more on the strategy side that's doing the actual uh, bid event and those sorts of things. But I think it's 40, 45. So 40, 45 people in procurement. And I'm also... Well, I'm not going to assume I'm going to ask you. Um, so out of those, how many in procurement are related to the transportation side as opposed to procuring all of the other things that you need within the business? That's just procurement. I mean, that's just logistics procurement. We have okay. a whole other group that does procurement of all the other materials that we need. Wow. Yeah. So, and for our listeners out there, right? Procurement is, do you want to define what procurement is? We get asked this question a lot. Yeah. It's basically the, the purchase, we, we purchase things, right? It's, it's, yep. it's vendor management, vendor relations. Um, but we're really just, we're buyers. We're buying what the organization needs us to buy to run the business. Uh, effectively. I, I would always, whenever people would ask me what's procurement, I would always just say it's getting stuff. Mm-hmm. It's pretty much what and it let me ask- You're getting stuff. Yeah. And and I mean, so what are some of the things that are important from the procurement side of the business? Like, what are the things that you are looking at? How are you evaluated as an employee in that department of the company? It depends. Um, And I think, you know, for for us specifically, um, being a we're a low cost leader. So um, being cost effective is of um, hyper importance. So you can think of some organizations out there, maybe a technology company. Um, uh, you know, that does like hardware tech or something like that, or uh, brand name um, retailers that maybe transportation doesn't make up as big of a percentage of their cost of goods sold, 
For us, it makes up a uh, abnormally high amount of our cost of goods sold. And so we have to be hypersensitive uh, to cost. So that's a huge deal. Um, and then business continuity, you know, making sure that I'm not just securing a price point that looks good on paper, but one that I know that our vendors can actually deliver at our service level agreements that we've set with them. So, yeah, so really- I want to I want to actually add to that to give people an understanding of context that why a certain commodity would have an abnormally high cost. So um, I'm not going to use your commodity, but let's say for example, like a lumber mill, right? Where it the the actual lumber itself is not very expensive, so to keep the transportation cost below a certain point is extremely important because otherwise it'll add to that bottom or that end user cost to get it. Whereas in comparison, if someone's moving a million dollar piece of equipment, they're going to pay whatever it takes to get that million dollar piece of equipment to where it has to go versus something that's less expensive per unit like wood or like brick or something like that, right? A basic raw material. Um, and we talk about context on that. Yeah. And we talk about that a lot on the show in regards to like exactly what you just pointed out, Paul. Like there are some commodities that when you ship them, like procurement and that company needs to be on top of what they're spending because it makes up such a large portion of whether you're going to make profit or not hit your goals as a company. And like you point out in other companies, you might be selling something that's super high margin, like maybe electronics where shipping isn't nearly the same percentage of the retail price. That's right. Exactly. I always thought that was interesting. Like when I, I was grocery shopping the other day and I saw, was it like, just like paper towels and toilet paper. And I was like, man, these take up so much room. I'm like, how, like, I like as a logistics guy, I'm like, think about how much it costs on a, you know, for a truckload from a distribution center to this store and how many can you fit on a pallet and how many pallets can you fit on a truck? Like I'm going through like nerd mode there. Yeah. Um, but that's a great example though. Something like, you know, like ping pong balls or toilet paper where it's uh, a, a fairly cheaper commodity. Right. So you have to keep that transportation cost low. I think that's where efficiency in your supply chain is a, it's a no fail mission for you guys. Otherwise you're not going to have, like Ben said, you're not going to turn a profit because you, you're going to have to keep your p- price point similar to your competitors for a similar product, right? Yeah. You can't so just say, oh, well, we, yeah. we paid some of these a lot spaces. of transportation, so we're going to double our price. No one's going to buy. They're going to buy our competitor stuff. Exactly. So. If you look at some of these spaces, right? Like think of high velocity items that you buy. It's not that expensive, right? Why? Because you're buying it frequently. Mm-hmm. So any anytime you're approaching a shipper that's in that space, you can assume that the transportation component makes up, like I said, an abnormally high percentage of their cost of goods sold. So there's just going to be a hypersensitivity around that. Yeah. Can I, I wanted to clarify too, one more thing. So you had 40 people in procurement. How many people on the operation side of logistics within the <clears throat> give or take? Uh, so logistics would be a lot of exceptions, management, tracking and tracing, um, things of that nature. They probably have, uh, I don't know the exact number. I'm going to say it's uh, north of 75, maybe 100. So roughly double, right? You got 40 people managing the vendors who you have, the costs associated with it, your service level, and then your operations people that are doing the day-to-day, making sure the trucks are where they're supposed to be. I'm assuming, and I don't want to assume, but are they the ones tendering the freight or are they? No, I think we do things a little bit uniquely in that regard where the the people that are tendering the freight fall within procurement. I know that's not standard usually, but mm-hmm. for us, it made sense for us to manage the whole life cycle of the tender 
from beginning to end. And that's what actually adds to the headcount. I think typically yeah. if you look at a procurement organization, they're not typically that large, but we've, we've um, captured some of this, what you make, what you might consider more of the operational component from the, the load tendering process that helps contribute to the bigger. So I, I want to ask some questions on your solicitation um, yeah. and go back as far as, as you want in your, in your memory and your history here. Mm-hmm. What are like, what is some of the most common phone calls or email outreaches you would get? What are, what are people saying to you? How are they soliciting themselves to your, to get your freight? What did that, what does that sound like? Cause we, the reason I'm asking is we tend to hear like some really, really terrible scripted style um, approaches, but I, I'm curious real world. What have you seen, Paul? So first of all, I would say I had to get rid of my desk phone years ago. Uh, I it just became I couldn't pick it up. Period. Right, just because the <laughs> the amount of solicitations coming in and I get caught on the phone and I'm you know trying to walk to a meeting. So I no longer have, nor anybody on my team has a desk line anymore. Um, so you can't contact me that way. Um, it's rare that somebody finds my cell phone number, and when they do, it's it's kind of more of like an upsetting thing. But it's like, how did you get my cell phone number? Yeah, <laughs> I think that's more personal. So I would say the vast majority of it comes through email, uh, and more and more seeing um, solicitation through LinkedIn as well. Those are really okay. the primary sources um, that I see it coming in. But yeah, in terms of you know what do you, so I would say the, the voice that's kind of out the window at this point. Almost nobody comes into the office. Even you know we're in the office. Uh, it used to be the case uh, back in, in, you know, let's say 10 years ago, people would also stop by with like brochures, documentations, um, whatever, things like that. That's not really happening anymore either. So yeah, really email and LinkedIn. Um, yeah, as far as what are some of the things um, that I see that, that stick out to me, um, there's some really, I'll start with the really obvious things. So um, did you spell my name right? I have an easy name to spell, I think, right? But believe it or not, I've seen my name spelled wrong on, on emails. My mm-hmm. company's name spelled wrong. Um, and so like step one for me is if you're not even taking the time to just get the basic things like that correct, like what are you going to do once you get my freight? Right? <laughs> That's a really good point. Business, But you, you know, take five minutes and make sure that you've got the spelling of the basic things right. Shit, um, Paul, five minutes. It should take them more than 20 seconds, right? If they're actually writing this email to you, then they should have had those right. You know what I mean? Like, I feel like a lot of that are, they're spamming hundreds, if not thousands yeah. of shippers pulling and scraping some other thing that isn't accurate, right? And it gets you exactly what you're saying, right? This is the result it gets you frustrated. I'm like, and I'm with you, Yeah. No, I was going to say, I'm with you, like the whole name thing. So like I've been called, my name's Nate and I've been called Nick. I've been called Dave. I've been called Nathan. And never once have I ever said my name is Nick, Dave or Nathan. Um, so that's all. It always kind of irritates me. And I'm like, all right, all right, back back to what you were saying. But yeah. it's, that's a good point. Well, I, I think to, to what you were saying, Ben, is it, the other, my second point is it's ex- very obvious when I'm being sent a canned solicitation mm-hmm. Um, you know, again, so some obvious things there, the body of the text is in black font, but my name is in blue font. It's like, okay, obviously you're going through your list and you're just changing out the name. It's like, come on, change the font a little bit. Um, you know, when you read, when you begin to read the message, it's, it's very generic. There's nothing that calls out my business, the industry that I'm in, what the problems that I might be facing are. It's just, I've got trucks. You need trucks. Yep. <laughs> Let's do this, right? Let's do this. You need trucks. I got trucks. Yeah. So those are the things, right? And those are kind of where, 
you know, you, you read the first sentence or two and within the first sentence or two, your brain either shuts off and goes like, okay, next, or, or you, or you hear something intriguing that gets you to read the rest of the message. The other big thing too with that is and you open it and it's like, you got a novel there, right? It's like, oh, this is five paragraphs. I'm not going to read five paragraphs, right? I'm going to read catch. It's like the, like a song, right? You got to have that hook. Give me something in the first two sentences that makes me want to read it. And then don't make it five paragraphs. Give me like five or six sentences of the value you're going to add. And then, you know, I can decide if we want to continue the conversation. So one of the things you mentioned is like the canned spammy style email. And we have over and over told people that it's a, it's a terrible approach because people are like, well, I can send out a thousand emails in a day, but I can only make 50 phone calls. So I'm just going to do emails. And, Exactly what you just explained there is why we tell people not to use that approach, right? Yes, you can probably send out a thousand emails, if not more, but they're not personalized. Uh, if anything, they could do more more damage than they can do good because someone's like, like when I see them myself, right? If somebody, so I, Ben, you probably the same way. You probably get solicited by someone supplying some tech feature or whatever, right? Probably three or four times a day. And I'm like, all right, this is annoying. And then you get caught like in their drip campaign where they just keep replying like, Hey, not sure if you saw my last email, but and it's like, dude, stop it. Like you don't even know anything about what my, I do or what my company does. And you're, you're, you're soliciting in a terrible way. And what I think is even worse is when they use like automation features where it'll like LinkedIn, it'll pull like your, your company name and your position. And then they try to like plug it together. Like I've had, I've had somebody solicit me and they see like US Army on my LinkedIn and they're like, hey Nate, I saw you are I saw your job at US Army. Do you have a need for trucks? And I'm like, oh my gosh, like you're you're pulling the wrong, the <laughs> wrong job trying to solicit something with logistics, but talking about the US Army. But yeah. So to anyone listening, you know, take caution when you're doing email solicitation. Obviously, Paul, to your point, it's the main method folks can get in touch with you now because you don't have a desk phone and people are not stopping in the office. Uh, but don't get caught in that rabbit hole. I'm just going to send a canned message out to a thousand different shippers and boom, they're just going to give me their freight. So for sure. Um, curious though, what have been some, do you have like any specific stories of people that have reached out to you and successfully caught your attention and you're doing business with them now and how that went? Uh, yeah, I could probably <clears throat> mention a handful that stand out over a decade, right? So think think about that for a second, right? So I just told you over 200 solicitations a year and maybe a handful that stick out to me. So it's really difficult to do, or at least the people, and, and to your point, I think there's been some really bad habits that have been created and people just keep doing the same things over and over. But yeah, so things that um, stick out to me are, you know, to your point about LinkedIn, people looking at my profile and saying, okay, I'm, I mentioned on my profile, for example, that I went to, Cal State Fullerton. Um, so, and they know Cal State Fullerton has a good base. They've done research and, oh, you guys have a good baseball program. You know, you follow on the team this year. Or I also mentioned on there that I coach Little League Baseball. So, they'll, they'll, so, so just little tidbits that show that they've done a little bit of research on me. And then two, and more importantly, that you've done research on my organization. If you go to our website, you'll find a ton of information about the products that we sell, who our customers are, where our manufacturing facilities are located. I mean, there's just a Trevor treasure trove of information. So in that email reference, you know, hey, oh, I noticed uh, you've got a, a plant in Plainfield, Indiana. 
Um, I've got uh, a dedicated fleet that I work with in that area. You know, I've got capacity there. Okay, you've now been a little bit more targeted in your approach. Um, and that things like that are, are what catch my attention. Um, but yeah, kind of there's enough information on the internet that you can kind of, you should be able to assess a little bit what the needs of that shipper may be. So if you, another way to do that would be through a load board and you see, man, I notice there's a lot of loads that are being posted out of this shipping, out of this city. That must be a certain shipper, right? Let me, and let me do some research. And then you're like, oh, okay, yeah, they're, they're covering 20 loads a week on this lane to this lane. So now you can reference that specifically. And right. So it's really about diving deeper and, and not spamming a thousand emails. But to me, if you spent a day writing 20 good emails with that level of detail, instead of spamming a thousand emails, I think their success rate would be much, much A hundred percent. I mean, I, I, I mean, I still to this day, I won't use any of that automated software for any prospecting for that very reason. I'm like, you can get it efficient where if you pick, I feel like, you know, like you said, you know, maybe 20, 30 companies a day where you're doing some level of research and really writing it geared towards that organization, right? Towards one thing you found or a few things like you get so much farther than trying to be everything to everybody, right? Like Nate always laughs because I always have some cheesy cliche, but it's like a jack of all trades ends up being like a master of none, right? You try to be everything to everybody and you don't go deep enough to matter to any one of the individual companies ever, right? Absolutely. Yep. And in a way you think you're, you're really selling yourself. I mean, there's these huge organizations, right? So you're really selling yourself because the other thing too is you got these big names out there, you know, whether you're agent, whether you're a broker, um, and they may have a certain perspective of who those organizations are. But what I've come to learn is that it really comes down to the person within that organization. So I can't tell you the amount of times that I've had an account manager on my account um, that was awesome. They, they, were, they owned it. They, they, they lived and breathed my business. Then for whatever reason, they moved on to their next organization and they, you know, they fill in that gap and things just quickly fall apart, right? It's like the exact same organization but it's all about those individuals within that organization that are really moving that business forward. And so in a way you're selling yourself more so than you're selling the organization. Yeah. We say that a lot because at the end of the day, any broker can accomplish the same thing. If you look at it like objectively, right? right. They have access to the carrier, the, the market of trucks out there. They have access to load boards. They have the legal authority to, be an intermediary and broker a load from you to a motor carrier. They have insurance, they have a claims process, but the subjective part is what does that entire experience feel like? Right? Cause Ben and I say it a lot. We all do business with people that we like, that we trust and that we know. And you know, if you've got, like you said, if a broker, an individual leaves a brokerage and goes somewhere else and your business gets backfilled by some, some different person in that brokerage, they're not going to treat your business the same way. They're not going to talk to you the same way. They're not going to have the same response time as the other person. Um, and that's where I think the relationship part of it is huge. And that's why I am personally a fan of using the phone when possible to make your prospecting calls over email because you can have that connection through tone of voice and just the way you connect with somebody in the way that you're talking to each other. So yeah, there's, um, there's, you can't there's, replace that. 
Yeah, there's no personality through text, right? Whether it is a literal text or it's, you know, the text in an email, right? You can't catch the tone. The person reading it is reading it in whatever mood they were in before they got the email. Like, it's not really going to change their mood. So they're having a shitty day and they get an email, like they're probably going to perceive it as annoying. If they're in a good mood, maybe it's something else. But over the phone, you can pivot, you can move in that direction. If someone's frustrated, you can empathize with them. Like the things that humans have done for thousands of years to connect with other humans, right? That doesn't happen over email and it doesn't happen over reading a text. The other thing I wanted to point out, right? You talked about, you know, finding unique things about lanes one of your facilities are running, right? And one of the things I think that's also helpful, you know, you pointing out load boards, which is a great way for somebody to find where these lanes are, but also just asking your drivers, right? The drivers are the ones that tend to know this. They talk to each other, right? And I can't tell you how many times I found like the exact same piece of information you just pointed out, right? A driver's like, hey, I know this facility over there shipping 30 loads to, you know, Smyrna, Georgia, and they've been having issues. Why don't you give them a ring? Now you're bringing like, in some cases, things to procurement that maybe they weren't even aware of from the operations team just because of the size of the organization, right? Or that just information hasn't gotten there yet. So you're literally bringing value, you know, with your front foot to start that relationship, you've got a much higher, you know, percentage of success when you're going to try to lead with those things. Right. And that's when you talk about, you know, offering tidbits of information too. like, hey, I noticed uh, the load to truck ratio in Georgia is at seven, seven to one right now. So, and I noticed you've got the, like I said, 10 loads on the load board, you know, I can help you. I've got the specialized capacity or what have you. That That's one big component of it. And I think the other one too is, Going back to the concept of being too generic, you know, the reality is uh, you, you, you mentioned also being master of none, right? It's, you know, when, when a, a broker says, oh, I service, you know, the lower 48 um, or like, you know, I got national coverage. It's like, look, you might, right? But I've always encouraged people, especially smaller to midsize brokers is create some power lanes, like really create a competitive advantage for yourself. I remember specifically a small broker that I was working with the years back. He said, look, I'm going to own the Texas triangle from Dallas to San Antonio to Houston, that whole triangle. I I'm going to own it. I'm going to own those lanes. And then he branched out from there. Um, but he first had to make sure we talked about price competitiveness, right? You can't be building really, you have so many hours in a day, you can only build so many relationships. So target those relationships that you're building, uh, which is going to allow you to get to a better price point, which is going to allow you to create density, which will allow you to create efficiency. And all those things lead to competitive pricing, which will appeal to a shipper. And here's the other point. And I think, you know, few people realize, and we've said this a lot, but even the largest mega carriers in the country do exactly what you just said, right? They aren't bidding on every lane for every major shipper that they get access to. They are looking at where they can add the most value and where that value is most realized by the customer, not hey, yeah, of course you can offer service in all 48 you know, states on any day of the week. But the reality is, is what's the quality of that service? Because everybody that has been in the business more than a few years realizes exactly what you just said. I want to talk to the carrier or if I'm a shipper, the broker and the carrier that understands some area very, very well. I don't need them to know every area. In fact, I don't necessarily want them to be an expert in every state because I know the more you spread yourself thin, the less value you can add in any one of those given areas, right? Just like you pointed out. 
I think, you know, I, I think we undervalue, or I should, brokers really typically undervalue consistency. So let's take an example of Dallas to Denver. And you might have a shipper that says, yeah, I'm going to run 50 loads a year on that, that lane, right? You might get one load a week. You might get two loads in one week and then not see it for two weeks, right? And so when you're trying to uh, secure capacity with a, a carrier, um, you're effectively securing spot, right? Because you can't tell that mm-hmm. trucking company that yep. you're going to get any sort of consistency. But now you target that lane, you get three shippers, and maybe one of them only, sh- and you get three shippers, each of them ships a load a week, um, and you can, but they don't always ship the same week. And now you're creating consistency. Now you go back to that trucking company that you know was offering you more of a spot rate. You say, no, I can guarantee you, I'm going to give you three loads a week, and you're always going to get those three loads that trucking company is going to be more apt to say, you know what, uh, because you're allowing me to create this consistency, I can go find a backhaul, right? And so that allow- that creates efficiency for my truck. So I can actually reduce my rate to you by X percent. And then you can pass on at least a portion of that savings to the shipper. And I, I just, I don't see it. I feel like I don't see enough of that happening. Um, and-, and I think that that would go a long way. Yeah. Well, I think the reality is the what you just explained there is like not one-on-one level stuff that people think about. They have to kind of, I think the industry itself weeds out the weak brokers and the people that think intelligently and become true logisticians and problem solvers. Those are the ones that think like that. And those are the ones that succeed. And those are the ones that stick around for decades or more and add true value in this industry. So um, I, I wanted to go back to, cause there's a little bit to unpack on what you said. And I think that's really valuable, right? Like, cause when you are at that level of depth on lanes, right. And you're talking about volume over a lane, right. On both sides, there's value added, right. You're adding value, not only for the carrier, but also back to the shipper. Right. And as middlemen and as brokers, right. That's really what we should be doing, right? Not just trying to throw a, you know, a fat margin on a load because you know your shipper's distressed. If you are finding opportunities of inefficiency on the carrier side and you can match up lanes maybe with other shippers or even with one single shipper and trade that volume for a discount, everybody wins. The broker gets a margin for the value added. The shipper gets a little bit lower of a rate. The carrier gets more of what they want and literally everybody wins, right? And so much we have people just wanting to profit in the short term in spite of themselves and they end up losing in the long term. Yeah, we, we I think we talked about, I don't know if we talked about before we started, but the whole concept of how do I get past the quoting stage Right, like okay, they gave me a price. What are they doing? What is the shipper doing with that price? They're going to their incumbent and saying, "Hey, incumbent, I got this price point," and then they're giving it to their incumbent. Right. So yep. to your point, what you want to do is one thing is if I let you quote the business, if you don't ask for any information on the operational characteristics of that lane, I know you can't possibly be quoting that business. Right? Are you looking at is this a yes. live load, live unload? Is it a what is the average load and load and unload times? What is the receipt? What is the um, pickup appointment going to look like? What are the delivery hours? Like, if you're not asking those questions, how could you possibly quote that effectively? Right. Paul, I did that with a client yesterday. I was like, they're like, we are quoting these customers over and over and we're not getting them. And I'm like, okay, well, what is the context? And they're like, well, what do you mean? I'm like, well, what's the scenario? Like, what's the situation? How often are they running it? Is it need to go out now? Is it a last minute load? Is it a predictable load? Is it one that's going to go out every week? Everything you just named, I'm like, if you ask these questions, you have the better understanding as to why you're high, low, not in the ballpark, or have any idea. And what they don't get is that 
when they're not asking those questions, just like you pointed out, the impression is, guess what? You're not very good at this. You haven't done it very long and you don't know enough about it to earn my business. So yeah. it is what it is. Move on. And I want we're going to dig into that one more when we get to the Q&A se- section for sure, because we had somebody ask us um, about that and I want to break it down in more detail. But I, before we get to that part, I, I had one, one last question for you, Paul. Um, so... And this is kind of like a takeaway for the listeners. So we already mentioned some of the good things that a broker can do uh, when working with a shipper, such as attention to detail with, you know, having the correct name and company, right? And spelling it right. And bringing some value in specific context to your communication, not just I have trucks, you need trucks. So outside of those things and the personality connection, what are some other good qualities that you see in the providers that you guys are using now with the solicitations or with the actual or actual so with, with your actual brokers that you're yeah. working with now what is it about them what qualities or characteristics do they have that it makes you want to continue to do business with them it's all about um you know da- data being able to surface insights from data to help create sustainable pricing advantages so obviously any of us could float with the market uh, up or down but what are things that we could do to actually drive cost out of doing business with one another? So, you know, looking, going through our data and saying, okay, hey, I noticed, for example, your average load time out of this facility is three and a half hours. If you can get this down to two hours, I could reduce your rate from X to Y, right? Or um, if you can give me three spots at this facility, I can, you know, bring in X number of trailers and we can do drop and hook, which allows me to get uh, another turn on yep. the truck. So they're bringing things like that that are really outside of market dynamics, right? It's legitimately Mm -hmm. and finding ways to service your business cheaper. And those are sustainable things that um, work inside and outside of, uh, you know, markets. So they're they're going above and beyond the average, like the average freight brokers is kind of what I'm hearing there is they're, they're actually giving true insight, not just being the, the legal broker that can tender the, or that can, you know, be an intermediary and get you a truck. They're they're adding. They're like an extension of your procurement department, is what it comes down to. I say that all the time. My my, that you are my supplier. Uh, you're an extension of our organization, and so um, it's your trucks that are bumping the dock. Your drivers that we're ta- that are talking to our customers, and so we have to. Um, it has to be treated that way. And so uh, I have so much time in a day to go through my data. I'm looking for opportunities, but I'm also looking for you to surface opportunities uh, for me as well. Yeah. And I think I think a lot of those things can be uncovered by also like just better communication with the carriers too, right? It's not just on the shipper side. Like I had a I had a shipper that shipped cotton out of Memphis and it was exactly the scenario you just talked about. Talking to the drivers and they're like, look, we could turn five loads a day. They were local loads going back to the rail. And they're like, look, we could probably turn eight if we can reduce the loading and unloading time by 45 minutes each. Well, if you're literally listening to their drivers and not just treating it as them complaining, I would go back to the shipper and go, look, if we can do some things over there, I can cut your cost by, you know, whatever, $75 a load. The carrier is going to see some of that. I get to benefit some of it and the shipper gets to benefit from it. But if you're not listening and conveying them back and forth, because like you pointed out, you've got other things on your plate. You're not able to get into the granular details of every shipping lane and every facility on every week, right? This is what the broker should be finding to bring back to you. Absolutely. Yeah. 
All right. Well, we're going to get into our Q&A here in just a minute. But first, I'm going to give a shout out to our friends over at Lean. Lean Solutions Group is the industry leader in nearshore staffing solutions with offices in South America, including freight broker back office operations, accounting, tech development, business development, marketing, customer service, and many other positions. To learn more about the vast solutions that Lean has to offer your freight brokerage or agency, visit them online at www.leangroup.com. That's L-E-A-N group.com. All right. So our first question, we kind of already flirted with it here, but I'm going to read it off. So how do I get beyond just quoting a customer when they have other brokers or they keep telling me that the load was covered by somebody else when I do send them a quote? So this is, um, you kind of already... You kind of already cracked open the knot a little bit, Paul. You said, if somebody sends a quote in that's a new provider, you as a shipper, you're going to be like, hey, hey, everyone here in my bullpen, here's the price I just got, and it's lower than all of you. Right. You know, Step up to the plate. What can you do here? So what does that process look like if somebody comes in and quotes a more competitive price than what you're used to? So we, it's a little bit different because we don't do that for spot pricing. It's it's really through the uh, RFP process that we would let a new supplier come in. So I can speak to that if you want. We don't do it as much with the spot side. But on the contract side, I mean, we're very deliberate about going through our solicitations. So I did mention that, you know, we get a lot of solicitations. Uh, we do create a central repository for that. And at some point in the year, we actually do go through all of those. And we um, have a, a survey on our website, actually, where we ask for a ton of information, you know, where you're, where are you domiciled, where are your power lanes, um, you know, just mm-hmm. who are, who are some of your customers and a lot of things like that. And there are, there are periods throughout the year where, where we will go and assess and go through those hundreds. And of those hundreds, we might find maybe 15 to 20 that we say, you know what, this is worth a fo- follow-up phone call. And then we'll go have a 30 minute or hour long conversation um, and see if there's a, um, a potential synergy there. Then we'll let that carry into the bid event. Um, and we are very deliberate in those conversations of saying, hey, you need to build, you need to be meaningful to us, right? And so you need to build a decent amount of density in a certain market. I can't have you winning one lane in the Northeast, one lane in Texas, one lane in California, and calling that your bid award, it's I need you to have a little bit of density that we can scale with, start kind of as our anchor point and then scale from there together. Um, if we have that, then it makes sense for us to onboard that carrier and go through you know all the paces with, you know just like onboarding an employee, right? Of, of going through our operational mm-hmm. SOPs, how to do invoicing and billing, all the uh, uh, tech setups, like you know, for doing API connection or EDI connection to do tendering, how to navigate our TMS, and I mean, there's a lot that goes into that, right? So we want to make sure that the people that we're partnering with, it's worth putting in that time and energy because we know we're going to get value out of that um, relationship. Um, so that's kind of more or less how we would approach. That. And I want to I want to drive that nail home, right? For all of the listeners out there, right? What he just pointed out is how you get the door open, right? And how you get the door open is being very good at one thing, not offering everything. Because if you're good enough at one thing, and that's to be honest, like I worked at a very very large brokerage, and that's how all of even the the largest account started was, hey, we can help with this niche area. Maybe it's again, I don't know, Georgia. Maybe it's Houston, uh, you know, West Texas, whatever it is, we're really good at this. And then from there, 
you expand it, right? And that's how all of the mega carriers operate as well, as long as well as the brokerage, right? It's not offering everything to everybody. It's we can do this very well. Let us help you with this. And then we'll see if we can go from there. Absolutely. Yeah. So I want to add to, so the question, so look, I want to kind of shift it, um, Ben, for someone that's maybe doing some spot business, right? And they, you know, they're quoting, they're quoting and, oh, you know, it, cover, it was covered by somebody else. I know I'm being played against somebody else. Um, so the advice that I would give is you need to ask some some questions that give you context as to what's happening and why. So do you understand why you weren't given that load? Did it have to do with your response time that it was covered before you got back to them? Or was it just strictly a price driven thing? Or was it, you know, you know, they don't have trust in you yet. I mean, there's a variety of things subjectively that can make that shipper decide that, no, I don't want to give you a load. You know, it could be, yeah, you're pr- you might've come in at a decent price, but I just don't trust you. I, I have no track record with you. I haven't learned to build rapport with you. Ben, what else would you add for spot business like that for folks that, that can't think, get past that first point yet? I think the other thing is really, and this is where a lot of newer brokers, there's a lot of hesitancy. It's taking the load with the confidence you'll get it covered because you have carriers in those lanes or in those markets, right? You know, Paul mentioned it, but I think a lot of times care or brokers don't have the relationships on the lanes and they're heavily reliant on the load board. So they're hesitant to commit to the shipper. And when they're hesitant, right? Like, of course the shipper is going to be hesitant. So they go with a person that gives them the most confidence. Meanwhile, the other broker that might've taken that lane didn't maybe did or didn't have the relationships anyway. It's how it's perceived. I think from the person that needs the thing, right? The shipper needs the truck. So if I get played over and over. The first thing I'm doing is what Nate pointed out, a little bit of what Paul pointed out in regards to trying to understand it, calling them immediately, what is going on with this lane? Hey, where did I fall? And usually the question I ask is, hey, is this a rate sensitive lane, like where you are trying to get this move for the lowest cost? Or is this, it needs to go? Because those are very different contexts and they have very different pricing associated with it and different work. But most people just treat it as if everything is the same and they're really not. Yeah, and I'll, I'll add lastly on this, you know, put yourself in the shipper's shoes. If you're a brand new broker that's trying to get their business, you as a broker have nothing to lose if you screw them over, if you mess something up. It's just, all right, on the next one. And it, <laughs> and it costs that shipper a ton. I mean, it could be some somebody's reputation or job or promotion because they made a bad decision when they shouldn't have, and it collapsed. You know, it just kind of in, imploded on them because oh, this guy gave me a better rate. Well, I should know whenever I get this sounds too good to be true low rate, they typically fall out on me or something stupid happens. So, yeah. So just consider that. All right, next question. I built a brokerage from the ground up. Should I let a close friend become a half owner? <laughs> Hell no. I'm actually wondering why someone would ask this question. This came through our Facebook group, Ben. Um, I mean, can you see any any instance where you would take your hard? That'd be like if you know we built up a great freight 360 business and we're like, hey man, let's just Paul, you want to be third? You know, one third, one third, one third with us? Absolutely. No. <laughs> so I mean, I can't think of I can't think of any situation when you'd want to just have somebody else come in as a half owner unless they have helped you along that journey to build build it or if they're bringing something to the table. Maybe you run a big full truckload 
business and they run a, a strong LTL business and you want to combine them together and go 50, 50, that's, you know, that's the potential, but do you, I think, you know, I, my two cents on that is, you know, if you have uh complementary skill sets, right. So maybe one of you is good at, at landing a client, but one of you is better at, you know, working on the, on the carrier side or, you know, I, this guy's better at tech. This guy doesn't, you know what I mean? Like, so I could see, I mean, I've seen instances where there's been, co-CEOs and they, they make it work and they were friends. And uh, I've seen a couple instances where carriers came from, you know, they met each other at the same brokerage then they broke off and created their own company. So it's, it's possible. I, I wouldn't put totally put it past them, but you know, you have to really do your diligence on, you know, to your point, like, are you actually adding value or are we doing this? Cause we're friends. Yeah. And the specific and I, question was the guy had already built a brokerage and now he wants to bring his friend in and offer him half the stake, which is definitely not. But I agree on the complimentary part of it. I, I think, I mean, I would really emphasize the complimentary part. I mean, I try to find all of my business partners that are much better at the things that I know that I'm not good at. And I think that makes for a good relationship. But also, like, you can still do business with each other without giving them half of the ownership, right? There are lots of ways to structure that to make everybody happy. It doesn't have to be, you know, 50-50. If you built something, there's a lot more value than the person coming in the door. You can still work with them. You could have some co-ownership, but I would make sure that somehow you're structuring this in a way where you didn't give half the asset you built just to work with your buddy. Yeah, and I think that's where the... Um independent contractor or agent sort of relationship can be used to kind of test the waters, right? Like, hey, I'm not going to give you a piece of the pie here, but you can come work with me and I will pay you a hefty percentage of the business that you bring to the table. And let's do that for a while and see how it looks. And then if we want to you know, pivot the direction of this company and do something new with it together, then we can look at that. So, all right. Um, Next or final question. I'm becoming a new freight broker agent. I have no book of business, but I will be getting my own customers. What should my percentage be with the brokerage? So they want to know how much they should be getting paid as an agent. If they're brand new, no experience, no customers. I would say, first of all, um, I mean, I've been working with agents for a very, very long time. Ben, you as well. Um, I mean, good luck finding a opportunity at a reputable company having no experience and no customers to go be an agent. Um, there are companies out there and there's smaller brokers that are willing to take you on because I think there's no risk to it. But I mean, realistically, I don't know, 40, 50%. What, I mean, if you have experience and you have customers and you know you go to a reputable company, they're going to pay you 60, 65, 70%. And that's a good company if you have customers. If yeah. you don't, and they're going to have to babysit you, I mean, I wouldn't be paying, I wouldn't even bring one of those people on to begin with, but I, maybe 40%, 50, I don't know, Ben, what do you think? I'm same so with you. And I think, no, experience, no customers, what would you do? And I think this is very similar to what we're talking about in other scenarios, right? It's the context. Everybody wants to focus just on the percentage and not everything that surrounds that number, right? Like you pointed out, if you're coming on, is this person training you? Is this person helping you? Are they covering your loads? Are they teaching you how to cover loads? Are they spending 20 hours a week getting you up to speed on the business? All of those things come at a cost, right? If you're genuinely coming in and you have no customers, but like you pointed out, maybe you did, maybe you were very good at this. You had a book of business, but you couldn't take it because you had a non-compete or a non-solicit. 
completely different scenario than somebody that has never worked a day in this industry, right? And I think, you know, that's really what matters the most is how much time this business has to spend on this individual. But either way, you're not getting 60 or 70% with no customers because you are the riskiest person. Yeah, I would. So you, you brought up a good point. You know, there's other context to this question. So I would add in, if I found somebody that is a stud salesman or saleswoman, just a great relationship builder, great problem solver, they can learn the industry quick. And my goal for them is, hey, I'm going to I'm going to teach you brokerage, but it's your job to go out there and build up your own book of business. I'm not making calls for you. You got to learn the hard way and you got to fail and fall over and fumble until you figure it out. Um, I might pay them like 35%. And if I think that they're that good of a salesperson, I might say, hey, I'll put you on a draw for a month. And if you can turn a customer in that month, great. If you can't, then it didn't work out. So that, you know, there is, there's context to it. Um, I feel like when you typically when I meet somebody that is good at sales, you can tell right away like they're going to do a good job at building a relationship and being likable versus someone that's like, oh, freight brokers, I heard they can make good money. Uh, let me get a job doing this. Oh, I don't want to make 100 calls a day, though. So there's a big spectrum there. Well, it's funny. And like, I always go to like, and again, it sounds cheesy, but it's like somebody's ability to initiate a conversation and be able to build rapport quickly, right? Like it's like ability. I mean, however you look at it, like that's one of the hardest things to do. And it's like, we've been talking to Paul for a little under an hour and like absolutely in a heartbeat in this amount of time, I'm like, he has all of those things, right? Like you can tell why he's good at what he does and how quickly he's able to do those things. Those are the things that I think, you know, matter far more than some of the other things if you're trying to hire somebody. Yep. Agreed. Well, good episode, guys. Paul, thanks for coming on, man. You got any any last minute uh, things you want to toss out there, tips or don't do? I was one last thing. Like just thinking back in my, like the early days of, of my career is I think maybe some of the people may make the mistake of trying to go after these big whales, Right like mm-hmm. an enterprise level shipper brand name that everybody knows. Those are really hard nuts to crack, right? It takes a lot of work. And like we, like we just spent this whole episode talking about, but one thing I just thought of is, you know, think of some of these brands that are up and coming that aren't as, as hard to crack, right? They're desperate for, for capacity. They mm-hmm. don't have any networks built yet. They don't have any uh, capacity providers. Those are harder to find, but you might find some companies out there that are like, on this beginning of this rocket ship stage, it's way easier to get into those companies, build those relationships, and then get on the rocket ship with them. And then they'll, you know, they'll become those big accounts that you want them to I'll, become later. So, I'll name a few I, for people out there that I'm aware of. Like during the pandemic, a lot of the home delivery food companies blew up and they were in that same position. And a lot of people I had talked to, you know, in my network of other brokers, the exact same scenario you just explained, right? Got on, got on with them. They've only been in business two years. Their network isn't that big, but you know, the demand skyrocketed so much. They didn't have capacity in those areas. There's a lot of value that can be added there. And and by the way, for our listeners, that's not that hard to find. You can search through reference USA or any of the big databases to see when the company was established. You can run reports to see to where you're prospecting companies that, you know, have been in business less than five or, you know, three years, but you're seeing them in the news. Those are great ways to find companies that don't have established networks and are looking to add, have value added. 
Yeah, I'll uh, real world example. We had this happen earlier this year. Um, a beach chair company that's fairly brand new. I, w- I want to say they're less than a year in business. No brokerage out there would give them credit. So they're, you know, they're they and they're like, we need to move stuff. No, we don't want to prepay every single load we move. Um, we were able to. There was a personal relationship between one of our brokers and someone at the company, so we had a little bit of like subjective, like we could kind of rely on their reputation a little bit, but it came down to like, Hey, like if you guys are going to grow, we want to grow with you. We'll, we'll give you a little bit of a credit line, show us in return that you can pay your bills on time and let's be a partner for the long term. So Paul, I love that you said that because that's, that is huge. And again, the beach chair thing is a very, it's an extreme case, but you know, these folks that are already, they're doing business and they're, they're working with brokers and, and carriers, but they're, they're, Demand for it is is dramatically increasing, and they just they they don't have the infrastructure internally to find all the capacity themselves. So they need to rely on a broker to be that extension of their supply chain. So, great tip there. I love that. Yeah. yeah. All right. And my thing. I think so, the one thing I would add to that is like when you're pulling yeah. your prospects together, like you should have a mix, right? My my opinion has always been like seventy percent should be more of the lower hanging fruit, small to mid sized business. Twenty percent maybe mid to large, and ten percent your whales. So you got a little bit of something you're kind of excited about the huge companies. Maybe you're working four or five because it's going to take you a year to two years to maybe three years. The you know the mid to large, it's going to probably take you six months to two years. But the smaller ones, like you pointed out, you can flip those in a month. You can flip those in a quarter, right? And again, if you if you intentionally think about this before you start putting your leads together, it's a lot less frustrating when you're only like you pointed out, maybe there's, there's definitely brokers out there only working and trying to get whales. Right. And they're like, well, I haven't gotten one. Well, it's because you're trying to close Nabisco, Walmart, Pepsi, Coca-Cola, right? Like they're all going to take a year or two. You might get there, but don't expect to close those in the next two weeks. Yep. Well, good episode, everybody. Paul, again, thanks very much for joining us. And um, that's all we got for today's episode. Um, Paul, any any last minute thoughts here? That's it. Thanks for having me, guys. It's been a blast. Yeah, our pleasure. Ben? Yeah, as well. I mean, I, I really feel like I could have this conversation all afternoon. It kind of makes me want to go start prospecting to go <laughs> dig into some of the stuff. But uh, <laughs> yeah, whether you believe you can or believe you can't, you're right. And until next time, go Bills. That wraps up this episode of Freight 360. Check out the show notes for links to anything that we've referenced on this episode. And make sure to visit us online at Freight360.net to see our entire library of episodes, videos, blogs, and more. And make sure to check us out on Facebook and subscribe to our YouTube channel for daily and weekly tips and content. If you'd like your question answered on the show, fill out the contact us form on our site and we'll see you next week.